we're dealing with the tenth and final plague. This is the ultimate blow. So chapter 11, verse 1. And Yahweh said to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt, and after that, he will release you from this place. That's the first time God has said that. Before he's like, he won't release you, he won't release you, everything is going according to plan. Now, for the first time ever, Moses knows there's only ten plagues. Remember, he had no idea how many plagues there were going to be. And with each one, it's like, is this the last one? No. Is this the last one? No. Now he knows. It's to an end. It's been 11 months. 11 months of going through this. When he releases you, he will drive you out completely from this place. Instruct the people that each man and each woman is to request from his or her neighbor items of silver and gold. Now that's important. This is going to be referred to, this has already been referred to once when God said, I'm going to, you're going to deliver my people and you'll come out with wealth. Now he says you'll come out with wealth. And then he'll tell them at the Exodus you're going to come out with wealth. This all goes back to Genesis 15. When God makes the Abrahamic covenant and says, Abram, you're not going to see the promises fulfilled in your lifetime. Your descendants will go into slavery for 400 years. But after that, I will bring you out and you will come out with the wealth of that nation. And so here God is saying, by repeating this, he's showing it's been 400 years, but I'm honoring my promises. So I will come out, you will come out with silver and gold. Verse 3, now Yahweh granted the people favor with the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, respected by Pharaoh's servants and by the Egyptian people. This is huge. Moses has now become one of the most respected people in this foreign nation for who he is and what he's been doing and how he's been representing Yahweh. Moses said, Thus says Yahweh, About midnight I will go throughout Egypt and all the firstborn in the land of Egypt will die. The firstborn son of Pharaoh who sits on his throne to the firstborn son of the slave girl who is at her hand mill and all the firstborn of the cattle. There will be a great cry throughout the whole land of Egypt such as there has never been nor ever will be again. But against any of the Israelites, not even a dog will bark against either people or animals, so that you may know that Yahweh distinguishes between Egypt and Israel. All these your servants will come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Go, you and all the people who follow with you, and after that I will go out. And then Moses went out from Pharaoh in great anger. Yahweh said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, so that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. So Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, but Yahweh hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not release the Israelites from this land. So this is the night where God basically says, now the firstborn of everybody is going to die, from the rich to the slave to even the animals, everybody. Now, why is God doing this? This seems really harsh for an all-loving God to do this. First, you must understand that God is the one who created us, created the land, this is the point that Genesis is making, and put us in the land. Because he has authority over us and the land by creating us, he has every right to put us in the land and take us out of the land, period. One of the things that we've lost in modern day Christianity is this idea that God can really do whatever he wants. I mean, we're incredibly blessed that the God that I believe is the real God, mostly because more evidence points towards him than any other religion in the entire world does, 
just happens to also be a loving, compassionate God. I mean, the reality is we can't, it doesn't matter what you believe about God, it doesn't matter whether you believe in him or not, you can't do anything to change the fact of who the God is. And the reality is God is God, period. Whether you believe in him or not, whether you like it or not, whether you're in the right religion or not. And so there's nothing you can do about his character. There's nothing you can do about who he is. He's just who he is, and you have to deal with it because you only exist because of him. So we need to understand that. This is where the fear of the Lord comes in. This idea that he is God, and we are to respect him, we are to revere him, and the very breath that we have every second comes from him and him alone, period. On top of that, he just also happens to be a God who's incredibly loving and compassionate. If he was not a compassionate God, we would not be struggling with this. We would already know he's God. See, when kings did whatever they wanted and they killed whoever they wanted, nobody struggled with that because that's what kings are like, period. We only struggle with it when the seams do not fit his character. So that's the first point I would like to make. Second, once again, I made the point that God has to be a God of justice. We don't want a God that is not just. We don't want a God who doesn't get angry at the rape and the murder and the genocide that happens in the world. We don't want a God like that. When we, when we have leaders that are like that, we get mad. We think, what's wrong with you? And so if he truly is a just God, he has to do stuff like this. This is what it means to be just. And so if you really think about living in a world where there is no just ruler whatsoever who never, ever punishes evil, that would be a really horrible world to live in. And in fact, we make movies, and they're called post-apocalyptic movies. And when we watch them, we think, I never want to live in that time period. Okay? And so the reality is he has to be a God of justice, which means he's going to do things that you don't like necessarily, because that's what justice is. That's what justice is. Like I mentioned several weeks ago, I don't like punishing my kids. None of us do. But we do it because that's what's necessary. Now, how you do it is a whole other issue, but the fact that you have to do it makes you a good parent. He has to do that. Second, we all deserve to die, period. Or third, we all deserve to die. The, The minute we sinned against him and the minute we destroyed his entire creation and brought sin into his good creation, and we basically, the, when we get into Leviticus and Numbers, it's going to call it a high-handed sin. And it's called a high-handed sin because you're literally shaking your fist at God and saying, screw you, I want nothing to do with you. And that's basically what we were born that way, according to the Bible. So by that mere fact, the fact that you actually get to live one day past your birth is the incredible mercy of God. He has every right to wipe us out just by that fact alone. But he doesn't because he's merciful. Fourth, they deserve this because not only are they just sinners, period, but this is Egypt that has oppressed and enslaved and murdered people and even outside of the biblical story, the things that Pharaoh and the people have done to people. And this is poetic justice. Because Pharaoh took the firstborn of all the Israelites. Pharaoh took the firstborn of all the Israelites. Now, I know it's easy to say, well, that was Pharaoh and not the people. No, 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 no. I think we've all been around long enough to know that people know a lot more what's going on than a lot of times we like to admit. There's a lot of things that our government is doing, and we know it's wrong, 
but we don't like thinking about it or we think we can't do anything about it and so we just kind of ignore it. They know. Okay, when, all, when, when tons of babies are disappearing, nobody thinks, oh, that's kind of interesting, that's weird. Oh, well, you know exactly what's going on. Okay, even though the Germans did not know exactly how wide scale the genocide of the Jews were, they knew, okay, they knew they were putting them in ghettos, they, they walked by the ghettos all the time, they saw them dying, they saw them being shipped off, and they saw them never come back again. The reality is they knew what was going on. And that's why today if you go to, when my friends had, my cousin had a German foreign exchange student, you talk about the Holocaust and they hang their head, they don't ever talk about it because they know they were complicit. And so the reality is, you know. And so all those people are complicit by the fact that they didn't step in. I mean, there's that famous quote, all it takes for evil to survive or thrive is when good people do nothing. So there is a poetic justice here. And so you need to understand that. Now, does this still make it easier to swallow? No, heck no. But the other thing you have to remember, point number five, is God cares about these people more than you do. The reality is that he cares about them more than you do. Because one, these are just names in a book. Two, even modern day today, to most of us, those are just people in another country. But even if you're talking about really close family members who are dying under the judgment of God, you still don't love them to the same extent that God does because you weren't willing to die an eternal death on the cross in order to save them. And so the reality is you have to realize that no matter what you feel emotionally, and you have every right, and I totally sympathize with it because that's what makes you the image of God, and we should be bothered by this, and we should feel something by it. And if you don't, then there's something wrong. But no matter what you feel is nothing compared to what he feels. Just like no matter how much somebody might think that's not right that you spank your kid, that what they feel is nothing compared to what you feel as you're, trying, you're doing it. And that's the reality. You must keep this all in perspective. And then beyond that, I would say the sixth point is this. We have no idea what it's like to be the divine God of the entire universe who is holy and there is no darkness and no sin in you whatsoever and you look upon sin in your creation. We have no idea what it's like to be that God. When we look at this stuff, we are corrupt, evil, selfish sinners looking at sin. He is the divine, holy, righteous perfect God of the entire universe that spoke everything in the cosmos into existence and now has to look down on his creation and is completely filthy, corrupt, jacked up and evil. And he looks upon that every single day as a righteous and holy God. And we have no idea what that's even like to even come anywhere close to feeling that and looking at that. And so it's very easy to say, how could you, God? But we have no idea what it's like to be him. And the last point I want to make, the seventh, I think I'm on seventh, is this. The very thing that you're saying, how could you, God? You got it from him. Where does your sense of justice and that's not right even come from? It comes from him. So he gives you your sense of right and wrong and justice, and that's not right. And then you take that and you turn it back on him and say, how could you? 
that, that, that doesn't make sense. The only reason that you even feel that is because he put it in you as the image of God. And so you can't turn it back on him like that. And so you must remember these things. Now, like I said, this isn't going to wrap it all up in a nice emotional package for you, but that's not my point. And nor does God ever try to do that. The point is just to help you understand that there are things way beyond us that we can never imagine. So this is what he's going to do. He's going to strike down the firstborn of everybody. Now here's what's interesting. In one place he tells you, and in two places he's going to tell you everybody is going to be killed. The firstborn of every family. Even the Israelites. Even the Israelites. And you know this because the Israelites have to make an animal sacrifice to escape the death. And that's really important because here we have a wonderful foreshadowing of Romans 1 and 2. For all, well, this is Romans 3, but Romans 3.23, for all sin and fallen short of the glory of God. But that is the conclusion to a major point he's made in the first two chapters. And the first two chapters, he's making the point that you Jews are sinners and you're horrible, evil people, and you Gentiles are sinners and horrible, evil people. Everybody is horrible, evil people, period. There is no distinction between Jews and Gentiles in our sin. And there is no distinction between Egyptian and Israelites. They are all under the penalty. And you need to understand something. God never plays favorites. He never plays favorites. It feels like it when he chooses a nation and punishes other people. But remember, when we get to Deuteronomy 29 and 30, which is really hard to swallow, God says, and if you do the same sins that the Canaanites before you did, then I will punish you in the exact way that I punished the Canaanites. And then when we get to the book of Kings, he does exactly that because he does not play favorites. Okay, just like if you have two children and you're punishing one child because they disobeyed you, you're not punishing the other one because you're playing favorites. You're not punishing the other one because they didn't disobey you. But you know, you turn to them saying, if you do this too, you'll be punished as well. That's not favorites. That's justice. Okay, and so all both of them are under this. Both of them are under this. But then later he says, I will make a distinction between Israelite and Egyptian so that you will know that I'm the God of the Israelites. You're like, wait a minute, God. How, how, you said you're going to kill every firstborn, period, whether Egyptian or Israelite, and now you're saying you're not killing the Israelites because the true Israelite is by faith. You need to understand that when God first came to Abraham, there was no such thing as an Israelite, a Jew, or a Hebrew. Well, there was Hebrew in the generic, Semitic sense. But there was no such thing as a Jew or an Israelite. Abraham was a Babylonian. He was worshiping the Babylonian gods. He was ethnically a Babylonian. His father was Babylonian. In fact, his great-grandfather or great-great-grandfather came from the Tower of Babel. Joshua 24 tells us this. So when God picks him, he's picking a Babylonian to be his people. Then we come along and we learn that other people are joining Abraham. And we're told that everybody in Abraham's family is to be circumcised, whether they are born to Abraham or a foreigner bought by Abraham. Everyone who is circumcised becomes a part of the Abrahamic covenant, foreigner or free, okay, period. Then when we get into here, we're going to learn that the Egyptians, we just read, had great respect for Moses 
and multiple Egyptians are going to come out with Moses. And then when we get to the next book, when we get to Joshua, we're going to learn that Rahab is a non-Israelite who comes by faith. And then the whole book of Ruth is about a non-Israelite who comes by faith. And you're going to see this happening over and over again. And the by, by the time we get to the prophets, the prophets say, you ding-dong Israelites, have you not realized that the true Israelite is by faith, not ethnicity? It never. In fact, they begin to say one day Israel will have everybody from every tribe and every language in it, period. And God says, I'm going to kill all the, the people regardless. Then we get to Jesus, and Jesus says, you ding-dongs, don't you get that this is supposed to be for the world? And then he says in Acts 1.8, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And then Acts comes along and makes that point. And then the book of Revelation ends with there were countless people from every tribe and every language and every ethnicity and every nation in Israel. Israel has never been about ethnicity. He chose a specific people group, but that people group was supposed to expand the garden, just like the Garden of Eden in Genesis 1. And they're supposed to get as many people in, but they didn't. They became elitists. And they thought that God was playing favorites with them. But God wasn't. And so the reality is it's supposed to be everybody. And so when he's making this distinction here, he's saying, who are the only people who are going to escape the death of the firstborn? The one who sacrifices the lamb. Well, the only reason that you think killing a lamb is going to keep you from dying is faith. Faith. And the Egyptians are going to walk out with their firstborn sons, with the Israelites and their firstborn sons, because they all had faith. And they're all called Israel in the Exodus. They're all called Israel in the Exodus. It is not until we get to the wilderness when some of them begin to show that they really did not have faith to begin with that God begins to call them the mixed multitude. But he's not referring to them as Egyptian and Israelite. He's referring to them as those who have faith and those who don't. Because when we get to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews is going to make the point that they all came out but those who died were Egyptians. No, he doesn't say that. He says those who died did not have belief. He does not refer to ethnicity. He refers to belief. And so you need to understand something, that when he says Israelites are going to live, he does not mean ethnicity, although the majority of them will be, but he means faith. And that's really important to understand. This is why one of the first statements about the minute the Abrahamic covenant is made in Genesis 15, and the first time you can really begin to see Abram as a distinct person from any other culture they came from, and it says Abraham believed, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And that's when the nation of Israel started, by faith. And that's the point that Paul is going to make from that very passage. And I'll keep talking about that more and more as I go through every single book that I'll ever teach because this is a point that I think we've kind of missed a lot in the church today. So this is what he's going to do. He's going to kill the firstborn as poetic justice. But also what it does is it allows him to claim the firstborn because if I save you and you should have died, then you especially belong to me. You especially belong to me.